0: Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500 year old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute.
1: And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate, and an MBSR teacher and trainer.
0: Well, hello, John. Good to see you again.
1: Hello Doug. Actually, I don't see you at all because we were having some problems, so I turned off your camera, turned off my yeah, camera. I,
0: yeah. Yeah, so. well, we've turned off the cameras. I don't, I don't know. We, you know, it's one of these things where uh, the the Duca of modern technology where
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those days. And, yeah,
0: uh, where this the 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 information is unstable going through from one to the <laughs> other, so we have to turn off turn off our videos and hope that yeah, hope for and, the best. You know, and,
1: I know what you look like, and, and <laughs> nobody can see us anyway, so it doesn't really matter, and it's just about... Right. It. Right, the connection is unstable. So, so you know, one of the things we were going to talk about today are the, the hindrances, the five hindrances, the five common hindrances. Right. Uh, which can create a certain level of instability in our practice, particularly if we're not sure of how to work with them and how we relate to them. You know, we've touched on them in the past, I think, but we've never actually done a podcast specifically about them. And uh, they're really important. They're yeah, really they really important. are. Uh, if for no other reason that that, you know, when people first come to meditation, they confront them almost immediately. And then, you know, once you let people know, well, oh, you know, this has been a problem for everybody for the last. 2,500 years at least, <laughs> that at least normalizes the situation and the fact that they're, yep. you know, a key teaching within the four foundations of mindfulness normalizes it even that much more. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I suppose we should actually say what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they come kind of in, well, the first four come in pairs. Yep. So we have, uh, I mean, as I always put them out there there's sloth and torpor so mm-hmm. sleepiness and a kind of sluggish mind as a paired with agitation and worry mm-hmm.
0: to a too, too energetic mind. Yep.
1: Yeah. Right. The energetic, too much energy. And then there's desire, sense desire and aversion. So pushing away and p- pulling toward, mm-hmm. um, or, or reaching for and pushing away, uh, and then the last one is doubt, um, yeah. which uh, some people call the mother of them all, uh, or or it's almost like doubt is like the result of the other four, or can mm-hmm. be the result of the other four that that comes in all sorts of ways. But and I've always seen them more as I don't know why, even know why they're called hindrances but obviously that's the common translation. Some people call them obstacles. I, I prefer to, to think of them as teachers oh, or opportunities yeah. mm-hmm. um, because there's something to learn from each of them. If we think of them that way, then we kind of have the possibility of actually relaxing around them and saying, ah, yeah, here it is. <laughs> this is this right this is sleepiness this is agitation etc so it's like how do, and then and then finding creative ways of
0: working with them
1: so you know i'm curious to know how you work with them yourself
0: yeah well i mean or don't they arise for you <laughs> don't i wish yeah I mean, there's there's so many different uh, techniques that you can use with each of them. The techniques are sometimes successful for a while. Um they're not always successful. and it sort of depends it depends entirely on the hindrance. Uh, the The ones that I find relatively easier are the ones about ill will and uh, sense desire. Those generally, those are have those have relatively uh, easy in quotes easy uh, ways of dealing with them. I mean, if you have if you're caught in ill will, I, at least for me, if I'm caught in a in ill will, anger, hatred, uh, it can it certainly always helps to be aware of these things to to bring awareness of the hindrance to mind first to be so that you're not pretending it doesn't exist. But then uh, a practice of loving kindness, of metta, can be very useful in counteracting that ill will uh, for sense desire, which to me doesn't come up all that often. It's, to me, it's simply a matter of being aware of the sense desire and uh, making a, you know, a sort of a decision with that awareness to put it to one side for the time of the meditation. Um, the other two, uh, that is the restlessness and worry or the sleepiness, those to me are more difficult uh, to deal with. Uh, sleepiness is something mm-hmm. that oftentimes it can be an indicator to me that I need to take a nap, that I need to get more sleep. But if I'm, you know, if I have enough sleep and, and all the rest, then I usually don't, that's usually not a problem. It's usually a, an indicator to me that I needed more sleep the night before, Uh with restlessness and worry, that's to me probably the most difficult. Uh, and I remember a meditation session with a uh, bikuni, a female monastic that we had at, at, in- at New York Insight several years ago, Sialai Susila was her name, I think. And mm. she was asked the question <laughs> by one of the people in attendance, uh, what do I do about restlessness and worry? how do I, you know, what kind of, what kind of uh, antidote can I give to that, to that hindrance? And her, her response was practice. (laughs) You need more practice.
1: (laughs) And I think that's
0: right. You know, I think that's right. It's something that just sort of, it tends to go away slowly with, with practice. Uh, Now, I mean, all of these are hindrances in the sense that they're, that they hinder the, in particular, our ability to attain jhana or deep states of meditative absorption, I think that, at least within the early tradition, that was sort of the way they were, uh, one, of, one of the key ways that they were understood. So, uh, although that, you know, they're, they're also a hindrance in the sense that they get in the way of mindfulness, but, uh, so they're, they're, they sort of, they, they show up in a number of places in our practice, for sure. And a number of places
1: in our life. That's well, one of and, the first and, questions, you know, yep, I exactly. ask it's like, yeah, where else do you have this? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I mean, there's some really interesting antidotes to both sense desire and sleepiness. Um, uh, I mean, the sleepiness antidotes are pretty straightforward in the sense of opening your eyes or taking some deep breaths or standing up. I love the one of imagining that you're meditating on a cliff. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, that 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 really works. But I also find it as an interesting mindfulness practice when there's an awareness of of sleepiness. And in case you haven't gathered from from what Doug said earlier is that you know the very first antidote to all of these hindrances is just naming it and yeah. recognizing that it's there, and sometimes just the naming it takes you out of it. I don't know that that works for sleepiness so much. But if you if if there's an experience of the sleepiness creeping up, then if you bring mindfulness to what's going on in the mind at that moment, like what's really present at that moment that sleepiness is creeping up, just that, just the attending to what's present in the mind, may bring enough energy to keep you from falling asleep. Which is why, um, and we, you know, some people would say that the the factors of awakening, seven factors of awakening, present the antidotes to the hindrances, and the first three of those, the factors of awakening, are mindfulness, investigation, and energy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the the implication is that if one is mindful of what's there whatever the hindrance is and then really mindful of what's there like what is bringing the sleepiness on that investigation creates the energy to wake you up and the same to some degree could be said about agitation i think the the trap that people fall in with agitation especially if agitation was which presents itself in the form of you know just really loud obsessive thinking that just keeps coming up i mean it's agitation and worry right so worry is always Mm -hmm. about something in the future or it could be you know it could be a regret and worry about something in the past as well but at this moment at this very moment it's not present whatever it is you're worrying about you know whatever may happen hasn't happened whatever did happen has already happened so what's there to worry about in this moment but I think the trap that people fall into is thinking that they can actually, you know, stop it and, you know, try to kind of trap it and like put it somewhere. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And in my experience, just letting it, letting the obsessive thought or the multiple number of thoughts, just letting them run and eventually they'll quiet down. You know, and you can let them run without getting engaged with them. And it's like, whoa, where is the mind going right now? And it's like, that's another form of investigation. It's like, wow, you know, this little thing happened and this whole explosion happened around that of thoughts. Yeah. Um, and rather than thinking it's bad or good or whatever it is, it's just there and let it, let it run wild.
0: Yeah it can help also it can help also to um to name it uh some people use yeah various forms of of note what's called noting uh the thoughts so yeah. if there's a th- for example if if some thought about your job comes up again and again during your meditation just note it you know thinking about my job you know thinking yeah. about my job again and making yourself aware of the re- repetitive nature of your thoughts can be an antidote to them over time it's it doesn't happen immediately and you shouldn't expect it to happen immediately but (laughs) but over time you'll notice i think uh with the continuous practice that yeah you will the thoughts will tend to diminish yeah and uh, i also tend to treat it with
1: a certain level of humor (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, especially if there are these thoughts coming back again and again it's like really you're yep. coming back again now? I just sat <laughs> down. You know, whatever it is, you know, whatever yeah. is required. And, um, of course, the antidotes to sense desire. And sense desire to me is often just the mind wanting to be entertained. Mm-hmm. When that happens, I will just often, again, you know, n- naming it as as what it is. And when that happens, it's like my internal voice says, is this really helpful right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one 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 way of working with it. Another possibility is, I mean, if it's sense desire for food or for, you know, a sexual desire that arises, of course, one of the antidotes is to envision whatever it is or whoever it is after it's been digested or when the person dies, you know, the corpse of that person. That's a little extreme when it comes to sexual desire. But, you know, for some people, it's 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 a um, surefire technique to sort of let the, the desire dissipate.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ones that's actually suggested in the early texts. And right. I think the the reason for that is pretty clear, which is that the early texts were composed for monastics. Right. Uh, probably right. relatively young monastics who had to deal <laughs> with these kinds of uh, desires uh, uh, very strongly on a regular basis. And so they needed yeah. some pretty some pretty uh, powerful antidotes, um, antidotes that may not really fit with uh, say a lay practice, you know, nowadays. Uh,
1: You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this, you know, these kind of things will often happen when you go on retreat Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you'll see somebody that, you know, is really attractive to you. And I, I have a very strong memory of my very first retreat and that happened. And, you know, and, and you know, an entire life evolved in front of me—you know, marrying this person, having a family, all of that stuff—and then you know, at the end of the retreat, you know, it turned out well. She was engaged and was about to get married. Um, so you know, so this is where the 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 recollective capacity of mindfulness is really helpful. In that, oh yeah, remember the last time you went, got caught in one of those fantasies, you know. <laughs> You know, or you you hear the person speak and you really don't like the tenor of their voice or they speak a completely different language, whatever it is, you know, you just recall those moments and and again, treat it lightly with a sense of humor uh it can be really helpful. Um But then the other uh I, I, I know there have been times when I've been on retreat where where the mind wanting to be entertained will get stuck in some old movie that it's seen or that I've experienced or, or even like creating a whole new version of a particular movie. Um, (laughs) And, you know, or something will spark this, this can happen particularly when I've sometimes hear a Dharma talk, it will spark something that creates this whole scenario in the, in the mind, which is just the mind wanting to be entertained. And then I look back and say, well, okay, so what, what was said, and this is again the investigative uh, uh, quality. What was said that created that whole series of thoughts, and and that was you know that again created a different kind of energy, which really created you know the a, a, a possibility for some serious insight um, as to you know how the mind was uh, ex- being experienced at that very moment, and then as you said with aversion. Um, loving kindness, I can work for sure. Sometimes, um, an effective way to work with aversion is recontextualizing. So whatever is happening or whoever is creating the aversion for you, um, if you put the whole thing in a different context in the mind, uh, the aversion may change into something else.
0: How are you thinking?
1: What, So, I mean, one instance, again, this happened on retreat. Somebody was, you know, pretty, was coughing a lot who was sitting next to me. At that moment, in this case, compassion helped with the aversion. I couldn't necessarily recontextualize her cough. um, But I do remember an instance that, and my favorite description of this is something that my partner experienced on retreat was, if she would go on retreats often and, and one of the members of her saga was blind and had a seeing eye dog <clears throat> who was also on the retreat, uh, a guide dog and uh, the dog, you know, had a particular way of breathing that was challenging to sit next to. And yet everybody loved the dog. So there was no aversion to this. But Then an, a year went by and they had the same retreat and the, the, That particular Sangha member wasn't there. His dog had died. But uh, another Sangha member who had a tendency of very heavy breathing uh, was there. And, you know, she just imagined that Sangha member as being that dog that everybody loved. Uh, Ah, okay. The heavy breathing wasn't so bad. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are ways of working with aversion which uh,
0: can be useful as well. One early... Technique of dealing with aversion is to objectify the aversion as just being, you know. For example, if 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 what is aversive is a sound, then just objectify it as being, you know, vibrations at the ear door, as they say. You know, right. just, it's just it's just painful vibrations at the ear door. Uh, it's not nothing personal. Uh, it's just an impersonal fact about the environment. Yeah, and that can, I mean depersonalizing it and in the sense of not thinking of it as a person out there, who's doing something annoying, but rather just some feature of the environment that is not personal can help to take some of the, the strength out of the aversion. I think. Absolutely.
1: We take it personally sometimes, like when it's an external, you know,
0: when it's something yeah.
1: externally that is causing us causing aversion to rise up We take it personally, and and you're right, by depersonalizing it. And, you know, there's another, there's a a very funny poem. Um, uh, Of course, I'm forgetting the name of the author. The poem is called uh, Another Reason Not to Keep a Gun in the House. Um, (laughs) uh, And uh, it's talking about a barking dog. uh, And uh, the dog just won't stop barking. And so what happens is that the the victim of the barking dog starts to imagine that the dog is actually in the middle of an orchestra playing a <laughs> Beethoven uh, symphony. And, you know, the dog is like sitting next to the oboes and it's the part for barking dog. And so the poem goes on <laughs> about that and, you know, just, it changes the whole context. Sure. You know, which, which can work really well. Um,
0: yeah. The the most annoying time when I had to deal with a barking dog though, was, was in my, apartment in in new york when i was trying to uh (laughs) record videos (laughs) billy collins is the name of the poet by the way ah yeah yeah good Um, for the youtube channel it was uh not much you can do about that
1: i'll put that poem in the if i remember i'll put that poem in the notes because it's a great poem but i am curious to know doug how you deal with doubt which for many people is the most powerful one
0: ah you see for me doubt is not particularly powerful um good but that's maybe because of my background as a philosophy philosophy PhD. So, you know, it's sort of like if I have questions, um, which do come up from time to time, I just immediately will try to research them and try to answer them for myself. Um, I mean, I guess small amounts of doubt will come up from time to time, but they're never, you know, like, like, am I doing this right? Or, what am I missing? You know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, isn't there something else I can do to get rid of this sleepiness <laughs> or something, you know? But, uh, I, I guess it's never really been a big issue for my, at least at this point for my practice. Yeah. Uh,
1: it is for a lot of people, I think early on for sure. Mm-hmm, Cause mm-hmm. they're wondering, am I doing this right? Is the teacher any good? Are these teachings worthwhile? Whatever it is, you know, it comes up. Right. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the antidote for me, generally, is to recollect again when it when when I when it was obviously right, you know, when everything was was you know wasn't doing anything differently, but but in that moment, you know, the mind was able to be tranquil. Just because it's not tranquil now doesn't mean that there's something wrong, right? Um, exactly. You know, yeah. or recollecting images of the Buddha can be really helpful for doubt. But,
0: well, and asking questions—you mm-hmm. uh, know—if you—if you have a teacher that oh, you yeah.
1: like, it's hard to do that in the middle of a meditation. But yes,
0: right, yeah, right. I but think. if it uh, if it extends past the meditation, then yeah. uh, you know, asking questions, getting things clarified, and I mean, I think it's really important to say that if doubt continues with a particular teacher or a particular practice, uh, you know, there may be time to you know, reevaluate. Yeah, maybe the teacher is sure. not right for you. Yeah. Maybe the practice is not right for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, doubt can be can be a good teacher and you have to allow it its space. Uh, sometimes it's the sort of thing that we can overcome and, and get back to what we're doing. And sometimes it tells us maybe we should be doing something else, you know?
1: And, you know, some of us, let's face it, have, because doubt can also arise as the inner critic. <laughs> Mm, you know the kind of doubt that mara presents it's like who are you to be doing this you know Mm -hmm. you can't do this you know that that can often uh, be how doubt is experienced which can for many people be really powerful Mm -hmm. and i think that again you know recognizing that for what it is recognizing the you know, normalizing it in the mind because it's something you've experienced before and and kind of working with it as the Buddha would by inviting it in, you know, inviting Mara in uh, for tea. And naming Mara, you know. Yeah, naming it. As you said, yeah. And so, you know, that that can be a great way of working with it. Mm -hmm. And the other really important aspect of these hindrances is knowing when they are not present. Mm
0: Mm-hmm, Yep.
1: Uh, and it can be a really helpful kind of checklist.
0: The
1: mind's not sleepy. The mind's not agitated. The mind is not filled with sense desire, nor is it having aversion. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. Okay. Good to go, you know. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, yeah. Or even if it's with one of them, just to know that the other ones aren't there. You know, that can be something of a, you know, if you're feeling down about your practice because your mind is... Uh, you know, crazy and sort of zipping around from here to there, at least you're not sleepy, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so these are, you know, and, and as, as we implied, I mean, they're a major part of the teaching. It's the, it's the first teaching in the last foundation of mindfulness. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is about the hindrances, knowing when they are present and knowing when they are not. Yep. Yeah. Um, and if they are present, you know skillful ways of working with them um and i really encourage people you know to check out within your non-formal meditation life when they're present you know yes uh, mm-hmm. that's really where the teaching hits the road it's like oh yeah mm-hmm. there's agitation how can i deal with this now i'm not in formal practice how do i deal with agitation how right. do i deal with aversion etc so yeah they're really important part of the teachings and really really helpful in terms of being able to spot them name them accept them for what they are and then do a little practice bring curiosity to them and, and and explore ways of working with them
0: yeah because it can certainly make your day a lot better if you're not caught up in one or another of these hindrances even I mean outside of formal meditation it yeah. makes I mean it makes for a much more mindful, Mindful and present kind of way of living.
1: Indeed. Great.
0: So, friends, hope that's helpful. Yeah, and if it is helpful, consider buying us a coffee, maybe. Or three or four or five. (laughs) Or three or four, or or joining as a member, which is just a wonderful way to join us. And for members, we have special offers, one of which is a quarterly Ask Us Anything which may even be on the podcast. If you want, we might, we, we did one in the past with a member, which was fantastic and might do it again. So yeah.
1: we would like to do it again. In fact, we so, would
0: love to do it again yeah. if people want to.
1: <laughs> so as you take this forward, you know, good luck with the hindrances, just recognize them for what they are. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next time.
0: Sounds great. John. Right, take care.
1: Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at JohnAaron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Digging the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron.